Oh, well, good evening, everyone. It's great to, uh, great to see you tonight, and uh, great that we can be looking at uh, that part from John's Gospel together. There you go, little ring. Uh, so my name is, uh, yeah, my name's Kevin, one of the ministers here, and uh, we're going to look at uh, John's Gospel together. But first, let me pray again and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we do give you great thanks that we can meet together as your people tonight. And Father, as we come to your word to us in your holy scriptures, we pray that we might understand what you would have to say to us and that you would shape and change us by your spirit, that we might become more like your son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Now tonight we're looking at, uh, so that passage from John chapter 6 we read out, uh, if you would like to write down some, uh, an outline in your sermon outline, here you go, two points. It's, it's pretty straightforward, right? Number one, the first miracle, the feeding miracle, verses 1 to 15, uh, and we'll spend most of our time looking at that one. Uh, and then the second miracle, the walking miracle, verse 16 to 21, right? So that's a sort of bit of a heads up of where we're going. Now, these are familiar stories, I'm sure you've heard it before, uh, but hopefully, uh, as we look again afresh at these uh, accounts in Jesus' life, well, they might remind us and really drive home to us exactly who Jesus is and what difference that should make for us today. Now, as we start chapter 6, in some ways this chapter is a tricky chapter to preach, I think, uh, because chapter 6 really belongs together as one unit. So we kind of thought maybe it would be a good idea to preach all 71 verses in one go, but then we thought, actually, maybe that's not a great idea. Maybe we should split it up, and so that's what we decided. Uh, so today we're going to look at verses 1 to 21, Next week, Troy is going to come and preach to us from the next section, uh, where Jesus explains the significance, particularly of the feeding miracle, uh, and then finally, Phil will take us from verse 60, where we see the response of the disciples. But what that means is I'm going to give you some homework today, right? I know it's school holidays, so you shouldn't really have homework, but, well, that's what I'm going to do, so too bad. Your homework is to go home and read John chapter 6. Right? And there's two reasons for this. One is, as we look at the first section, as we see the feeding miracle recounted for us, I really want you to go home and to test what I say against how Jesus explains the miracle, right? particularly in the passage that follows. But the second reason is next week we're going to see Jesus explain the significance of it, and it'd be really helpful to have, well, the events as John tells them, to have that as the forefront of our mind. Right, so that's your homework, read through John chapter 6. Right, we'll get started and let's look at verse 1 then. So after this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or sometimes known as the Sea of Tiberias. Now we've got a, a map here coming up, so you can see we're up in that northern region, the region of Galilee, uh, and focused on that body of water, right, the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. So that's the kind of location for the events as they will unfold. But John also gives us the timing as well. Verse 4, uh, we learn that the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. And so we just kind of zoom in a little bit on our map. Sorry, hang on. There we go. Uh, zooming in on uh, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, you can see, verse 1, Jesus crossed over the sea. Uh, and so he started from over this side, the, I always get this wrong, northwestern. Is that right? Yes, northwestern side. Uh, we're not actually told where he started from, but he goes back there later to Capernaum, so presumably he started on that side 
uh, and he crosses over to the eastern side. Right, here we go. So, oh, come on, boat. Oh, hang on. I may run out of batteries. Thanks, Patrick. That wasn't me. Okay, that's fine. Uh, so he goes over to the eastern side. We're not exactly sure where he was, uh, but somewhere over there, and then he jumps out of the boat. Thanks, Patrick. Hey, there you go. All right, so Jesus is there, uh, but then we're told in verse 2 that there's a large crowd that has been following Jesus, right? So you can see them over where Jesus was. They've been following him from some time, uh, and they come and find him on the other side of the lake. Now, we're told that there's only one boat on the eastern shore, and that will become important later on, uh, so presumably they've sort of walked around the top. But one of the things that's really interesting and important to note is the reason why the crowd are there. So, verse 2, there was a huge crowd following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Now, if you've been with us in our series, you think, well, hang on, that's a little bit of an ominous sign, isn't it? the reason that they're with him. And I think that's kind of confirmed with what happens with Jesus, right? Verse 3, he went up a mountain, he's sort of trying to get away from the crowd, and there he sits down with his disciples. So if we go to the next slide, you can see Jesus heading off there by himself. And so Jesus is sitting there on the mountain with his disciples, but then verse 5, he sort of looks up into the distance, and he sees the huge crowd coming to him. So if we go to the next slide... There you go, the huge crowd is there. Now, when John says a huge crowd, he means, well, a huge crowd, right? Later on, we're told that there were around 5,000 men there. Now, the men specifically are numbered, uh, but we'd imagine that there were many others as well. They've just counted the sort of heads of the household. But you can imagine women and children as well as part of this crowd. Uh, one commentary I read suggested there may have been up to 20,000 people, right, in this group. Now, we don't know for sure, but that was kind of their guess. So, it's sort of a bit of a way of comparison. I did some uh, research and happened, well, it just so happened, right? Jubilee Stadium, just across the railway, has official capacity of 20,505, right? Pretty, pretty coincidental, isn't it? But what you do, just I want you to imagine for a moment, right? You're standing in the field, right? Looking around, the stadium is filled to capacity. It's a lot of people, isn't it? But just imagine then you have the task of feeding those people. Well, that would be a big task. And when you think of it like that, you really kind of feel for Philip. Because what happens is when Jesus sees the crowd coming, well, he says to Philip, one of his disciples, he says, where will we buy bread so these people can eat? Now, Philip is really kind of struggling with the enormity of such a task. So he answers, verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. Now, a single denarius, it's a sort of a unit of money, was what you'd get paid for a day's work. So, if you imagine 200 denarii, if you're working six days a week, maybe as a labourer in the field, that's about 33 weeks, right? Just under eight months. So, we're talking about eight months worth of wages, spending that on bread, that's that's a lot of bread, right? But you notice what Philip said? He says that wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. But at this point, Andrew, one of the other disciples, kind of rescues Philip, right? He pipes up, verse 9, he says, well, look, there's a, a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, when we see the word boy, I think we tend to think of like 
a little boy, right? My son James is seven, so you might be imagining someone that kind of age, but it's not necessarily the case, right? The word that's used is fairly broad. It can describe children who are very young, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, I said two again, Joseph, when he's 17, is described by the same word, right? So it's not necessarily a boy, you know, opening his school bag and taking out his pack lunch. Now, it could have been, but it could also have been a teenager or a young adult. Now, it is hard to know, I mean, why does the boy have food when everyone else seems not to? Was he just like one of those really prepared people, you know, who was always made sure he had food? Or maybe he was already there, Maybe that's why he had the food with him. You know, he was a shepherd out in the fields or whatever it was, but we're not sure, right? Whatever the reason, it seems that this is what the disciples have available, right? Five barley loaves and two fish. So if you just go back to the screen before, you imagine you're sitting in the middle of Jubilee Stadium. You can see, you know, 20,000 people around you. You spread out your picnic blanket. You put your five barley loaves, two tins of tuna, right? The reality is it's not going to cut it, is it? I mean, you might echo the words of Andrew and say, but what is this for so many people? But of course, the big difference in John chapter 6 is for these disciples, well, they had Jesus standing right next to them. And they'd already seen the kinds of things that Jesus could do. We kind of get the feeling that they should have realised that Jesus could have fed them. In fact, back in verse 6... When Jesus asked Philip, you know, how are we going to buy bread for all these people? We're given this little insight into what Jesus is thinking. That Jesus asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And what was he going to do? Well, miraculously, he was going to feed all those people. So John tells us very kind of plainly, verse 10 and 11, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. So John tells us very plainly, but it's a pretty cool thing to happen, right? With just five barley loaves, two fish, Jesus to feed all those people, and not just to kind of feed them to tide them over, right? They were satisfied, and there were leftovers, Right, verse 12, when the people were full, Jesus told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. And I think you, you kind of feel for the disciples, I think, at this point, right? Given the job of going to collect the leftovers, they've just been stressing how we're going to feed these people, not realizing that Jesus could do it. And now they have this task, rather sheepishly, I think, of going around and collecting up this big abundance of food. But having sort of skated through the details, as John tells us, one of the things I think that's really helpful to notice is that in John's account, there are a number of links or connections to the life of Moses. Now, Moses, of course, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, uh, he was the one who led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And when you start looking, there are a number of connections. So first of all, John chapter 6, well, it happens at the time of the Passover. Now, the Passover was remembering Moses, right, and the things that happened uh, when he was around. Moses was there at the first Passover. 
thing about Jesus, John chapter 6, he crosses a sea, goes up a mountain. Well, that's kind of what Moses did, right? Crosses through the Sea of Reeds up onto Mount Sinai. And for Moses, Moses, he has the people around him and they're grumbling, right? They want food. And so God miraculously provides for them manna and quail. You can see the similarity to Jesus who feeds the crowd miraculously uh, with the bread and fish that he has. But then, of course, there is the number of baskets that are left over, right? Jesus created all this food, so presumably he could choose how many leftovers were there. And so it does seem more than a coincidence, doesn't it? There just so happened to be, well, 12 baskets filled with leftovers. A, a link back to the 12 tribes of Israel that Moses led out of Egypt. Now, while the links here are fairly subtle, they do become much clearer when you look at the rest of the chapter. In fact, next week we'll see Jesus compare himself as the bread of life that comes from heaven Well, he compares himself to the manna with which God fed God's people back in the time of Moses. And so the links become much clearer as the chapter continues. But coming back to the first part of the chapter, these links are not missed by the people, right? Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, well, this really is the prophet who was to come into the world. And when they say this, they're referring back to an event in the life of Moses. Right, we read from Deuteronomy chapter 18 before, where God had made a promise that He would send another prophet like Moses, right? So, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your own brothers. You must listen to Him. So, what we see in John chapter 6 is the the Holman translators have tried to be helpful at this point, right? You can see they've given prophet a capital P to say the crowds are not just saying Jesus is a prophet, but He is the prophet. He is the one to come. But at this point, I think we're a little bit surprised because, well, the crowd are actually right. See, Jesus was the prophet to come. Uh, Later on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching and he says, well, he quotes Deuteronomy 18 and says, Jesus is the prophet to come. But this is a bit of a surprise because, well, the crowds in John's gospel, we don't really kind of expect much from them, do we? But it seems here, verse 14, that they're right on the money. But the problem, of course, is, is verse 15, isn't it? Right, verse 15 really sours their response because what we see is that the crowds, well, they were about to come and take Jesus by force to make him king. Now, what that means is that they wanted Jesus to be the king or the leader of their rebellion. See, the Jews thought they were being oppressed by the Romans and so they wanted to lead a a revolution to, to throw off their Roman overlord. And so their plan was by force to make Jesus the king of their rebellion. And so what you see is verse 15 is is tragic, isn't it? Because the people were sort of so close and yet so far. They recognized Jesus is the prophet. But then they didn't listen to him. Instead, they brought their own agenda, this kind of political agenda, to establish their own kingdom. And they said, Jesus, you must fit in 
did that. And of course, the great irony is they want to make Jesus a king, but they don't recognize that he is already a king. Right? He is the king of the whole world. And you kind of get a sense of what Jesus thinks about their plans. So when Jesus knew about this, well, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. But having looked then at this first miracle, the the feeding of the 5,000, I just want to pause for a few minutes and just reflect on, well, how this passage might speak to us today. And I guess having looked at the events, there's kind of, well, first of all, two kind of obvious questions, I guess, which come to mind, right? And these are the kinds of questions we want to keep asking as we look through John's Gospel. So the first question, as we look at the historic events recorded before us, Well, do we believe, do we accept that Jesus is the prophet, the one who is to come? And then another question, well, do you believe Jesus is the Messiah? If you think about the big picture of John's Gospel, why is he writing all these things? Why is he telling us about these signs? Well, John 20 verse 31 tells us so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God and by believing have life in His name. And so it's really important each time we come to John's Gospel to keep asking these questions, right? Have we come to recognise who Jesus is? And so with the questions there, well, how how will you respond? Now, for some of you, I imagine the answer is no, right? That is, that you're not a Christian. And if that's you, look, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here, right? Really glad you've come to join us at church tonight, and I would love for you, and I pray for you, that as you look at the evidence before you, that you would come to accept these things as true, right? This is why John has told us about these things, so we might believe them and have life in His name. But I know that for many of us here, the the answer would be yes, right? We've come to recognise who Jesus is and accept Him, and that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But I guess for you, I guess I just really want to push you on that. And to ask the question, you know, if you say those things are true, well, how well do you listen to Jesus? See, if you think about the crowd for a moment, they were happy to accept Jesus as the prophet, right? They recognised that was true, and yet they didn't listen to Him. Instead, they came with their own agenda, their own ambitions, their own dreams, and wanted Jesus to fit in with them. And likewise, I think the danger for us as Christians, particularly if you've been Christian for a while, is that we can slowly over time begin to stop listening to Jesus. And instead, we let our own agenda come into the centre stage. We let our own dreams, our own ambitions, the things that come naturally to us, well, those are the things that we do. And we fail to honour Jesus as our King. And so what I want you to do is just to ask yourself a kind of a a diagnostic question, I guess. Just think back over the week gone past, and I want you to, to think for a moment, right? Can you think of a time where you consciously decided not to do something that came naturally to you because you wanted to follow Jesus? Right? Can you think of a time where you consciously set aside your own agenda, your own desires, because you wanted to honour Jesus as your King? Now, if that's true, 
I imagine it's, it's not that hard to remember because it would have been a very hard decision to make. Right? It's not easy, is it, to set aside our own agenda, our own desires, and to live and, and to put Jesus as the king of our life. In fact, it may have been a very painful decision. It may have been a costly decision. Now, as we reflect on this question, I mean, it's, it's worth saying, right, our hope as Christians is that God would shape our desires to be in line with our God, right? We shouldn't imagine the Christian life is always kind of rejecting ourselves and this begrudging duty. No, no we hope that we find great joy in the service of our King, that we love to live His way. But here's the thing, right? See, if we never find it hard to live for Jesus, then we need to wonder maybe something has gone wrong. Maybe we've stopped listening to Jesus as our King. See, if we never find it hard, could it be that we've let our own agenda take the centre stage? If we're only ever doing the things that come naturally to us, if we're only ever doing the things the same as those around us, if we're only ever doing the things that are easy to us, we need to ask the question, have we stopped listening to Jesus as our King? One of the sayings, I think, that can be helpful here is that even a dead dog can swim downstream. The reality for us, if we want to live with Jesus as our King, we will need to swim against the current. We will need to live differently to those around us. We will need to make a conscious decision to set aside our own agenda, our own dreams, our own desires, because we want to listen to Jesus, who is our prophet and our King. But as we do this, right, we shouldn't imagine we're being shortchanged, that we're living a second-rate life. Right, think back to the crowd, right? They recognize Jesus is the prophet and yet they're so set on their own agenda. The problem with the crowd wasn't that their ambition was too big. Their ambition was too small. They were too easily satisfied with an earthly kingdom, with Jesus as their leader and the Romans defeated in battle. They were too easily satisfied. And so they missed what Jesus was actually offering them. They miss seeing that Jesus is the bread of life, the one who comes down from heaven to bring eternal life. They miss seeing that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And so for us as Christians, as we come back to this familiar story, well, may we come to recognize who Jesus is and seek to listen to him as our prophet and our King. Now, if we go back to a moment, to the next slide, you can see the kind of my well-thought-out uh, structure for uh, the talk this morning. By this morning, I mean tonight. So, we looked at the first one, verse 1 to 15, right? And I said that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But that means we're up to the second miracle, verse 16 to 21. Now, the second one is told much shorter, but don't think it's less important. Right? In fact, I think it's even more exciting, even more dramatic than the one that comes before. So let's get started then and uh, have a look with me there. So verse 16 uh, is where we're up to. 
But if we just go back to the map for a moment, uh, just to kind of remind us of where we're up to. Thanks. Oh, I've lost the map. There we go. Great. So uh, we've got... Where is he? Okay, this way. All right. So Jesus is with the crowd. He's just healed the 5,000. Sorry, not healed. Just fed the 5,000, right? And uh, they try and make him a king. And Jesus has departed, withdrew. So we get the next slide. There we go. Off, uh, off goes Jesus away from them. So the crowd and the disciples are kind of left where they were. Then verse 16, so we read, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Right? So get the next slide. There's the boat heading towards, next slide, uh, to Capernaum. Right? And we're told... Uh, sorry, so they're on the way, right? Then verse 18, they're on the way. Then a high wind arose and the sea began to churn. Now, what you have to remember is many of these disciples were fishermen, right? They'd grown up on the edge of this body of water and would have been familiar with the, the fierce storms that would have come uh, on this lake. Just go back to the slides, sorry, Patrick. Back to where we were. Yeah, beauty. Uh, and you know, you think of these disciples, right? They've lived there. They would have known people who would have lost their lives in a storm just like this. And so you can imagine for these disciples, it's a pretty confronting thing for them to be out in the body of water. And you kind of get the sense that they're really struggling against the, against the elements. So verse 19, we're told that they'd rowed uh, literally about 25 or 30 stadia. Now, a stadia is a kind of a, a measure of distance, right? One stadium is the length of the racetrack at Olympia, right? Apparently, that's where it came from. Uh, 185 minutes, so 20, sorry, 185 metres. 25 stadia, about four and a half kilometres. 30 stadia, about five and a half kilometres. Right, we'll call it even, right? They were about five kilometres. And you kind of get a sense that that has been hard work even to get there. Now, if you're interested in kind of the dimensions of the Sea of Galilee... Uh, 21 kilometres long, 13 kilometres long, sorry, wide. So they're kind of like in the middle. It's hard to know how far they had to go because we don't really know where they started. But, well, they're a long way from shore and they're in the middle of the storm. And while they're battling against the elements, well, then the remarkable happens. Verse 19, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I used to think of Jesus walking on water, I just kind of imagined like a garden pond, I don't know why, and, uh, and it's kind of calm, and Jesus kind of walking daintily across the top, you know, little ripples spreading as his feet just kind of lightly brush the surface. Maybe I'm the only one, I don't know. Anyway, the point is, is it's completely different, right? I mean, for one, they're five kilometers off the shore, right? There's water everywhere, there's a storm, there's wind, then waves, the boat will be going up and down, presumably Jesus is going up and down as well with the waves, right? And it's night time. Verse 17 tells us that darkness has already set in. And so you can imagine for the disciples, well, we kind of understand their reaction in verse 19, when they see Jesus, where John tells us they were afraid, and you can imagine they'd be terrified, right? Terrified to see Jesus out in the storm coming towards them. But while the events themselves are pretty exciting and pretty dramatic, we shouldn't miss the significance of what Jesus says to them. So verse 20, Jesus says to the disciples, well, literally, first of all, he says, I am. And these are actually really significant words for Jesus to say, 
particularly since he's saying them walking on the sea, right? Doing something that only God can do. Because what we see here is Jesus is identifying himself with the God revealed to us in the Old Testament. So if you think back to the book of Exodus, right, when Moses the prophet was around, God had come and revealed himself to Moses and given Moses a job. The place that he spoke to him was at this burning bush, right, the bush that was on fire but not burning up. Uh, and he said, Moses, look, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him to let my people go. Now, Moses is a bit reluctant at this point and he says to God, he says, well, who should I say has sent me? And here's the response, not that, this one. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now, when we talk about the name Yahweh, you may have heard that before, an older translation, Jehovah, right? That's reflecting Exodus 3.14, the Hebrew consonants of the phrase, I am. So, coming back to John chapter 6, you can see how Jesus chooses his words carefully and that here he identifies himself as Yahweh. He identifies himself as the I am. And of course, it's particularly significant, he says it, as he's doing something that only God can do. And so what we see in the actions and the words of Jesus, well, it's something we already know, right? That this is the eternal word, the one who was with God, the one who is God, who has come into our world. Now, you may have more questions about that particular miracle, but I guess I just want to finish there by coming back to the two questions we raised before. Thanks, Patrick. So he said in the feeding miracle, two questions, do you believe Jesus is the prophet? Do you believe Jesus is the Messiah? But now having looked at Jesus walking on the water, I think there's a third question we can ask, right? Do you believe Jesus is God? Because that's what we see Jesus claiming in this passage, by his actions and his words, that this is God who has come in the flesh. And so when we come to that questions, you know, if, if the answer is no, if you're not a Christian, then again, look, I'm really glad you're here. I hope you keep coming with us and keep reading John's Gospel and that you would be convinced of that. But for those who would answer yes, right, for those who are Christians, who'd say, yeah, I believe that Jesus is God, well, the same question as before, how well do you listen to Him? How well do you listen to the one who's revealed to us in John chapter 6. See, one of the things that's interesting, you know, Jesus is walking in the water, he says, I am, but then he says, don't be afraid. Right? It's a good reminder for us as Christians, we do not need to fear God. Right? We know that we do not deserve to be with him, but we know that Jesus is our saviour, the one who came and died in our place. We know that Jesus loves us, willingly gave his life as a ransom for us. As Christians, we do not need to fear God because we know that Jesus is our Saviour. But here's the thing, right? See, John 6 reminds us, okay, Jesus is our Saviour, yes, but that is not all that He is. Jesus is also the prophet, the one to come, the one who demands that we listen to Him. Jesus is also the Messiah, the promised King, the one who demands that we obey Him. Jesus is God the one who rightfully demands that we worship him. So these are familiar passages for us, familiar stories, but I hope as we looked at them tonight, 
is he's been reminded of exactly who Jesus is and that he is someone worth listening to. He is someone worth setting aside your own agendas, your own dreams, your own ambitions, but instead consciously choosing to listen to him as our prophet, our king and our God. Let me lead us in prayer as we finish. Our Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank, we, can, we thank you that we can read of these events in the life of Jesus. These incredible signs, these incredible miracles that show us who Jesus is. Father, we pray that we would come to accept this, that, that we would believe this. And not just say it with our lips, but that we would believe it in our hearts. Help us to be a people who trust in Jesus as our saviour. Father, we pray that you would shape and change our hearts, that we would love to listen to him as our prophet, as our king, as our God. Father, you know the ways that we let our own agendas rule. Father, we're sorry for this. We pray that by your spirit, that you would give us courage to stand firm and to obey Jesus, even in the times that it's hard. We ask that we would live differently from those around us as we seek to honour Jesus as our King. And Father, we pray that you would sustain us in this and that you would shape our desires, that we might find great joy in living for you. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.